Ladies, you probably have never heard of Miss Ada Skripenvaugh. She was born in 1941 in St. Petersburg when the Russian people were fighting to free themselves from the German onslaught of World War II. The enemy was eventually driven out, but for many decades there was no true freedom in her homeland. In the fall of 1961, Ada came to know Jesus Christ as her personal savior. She was 19 years old. With her new faith came the impulse to share with others. So she purchased some postcards with a beautiful picture on one side, and then she wrote a poem on the reverse side. The poem expressed her perception of life and the need for people to find God. Ada then took her postcards and stood on the Nevsky Prospect in St. Petersburg, which is equivalent to Fifth Avenue in New York City, and handed out the cards to people that passed by. Of course, she was arrested. In April of 1962, Ada was tried by a communist court. She was exiled from St. Petersburg, lost her job as a laboratory assistant. She was arrested again in 1965 and sent to a labor camp for a year. In 1968, she was arrested again and sent to a labor camp for an additional three years. Ladies, this is just one of thousands of stories of men and women who have suffered, who have been persecuted, and even martyred for their faith. During unrelenting persecution, Ada and many others have shared the message of Jesus Christ regardless of the cost. 1 Peter chapter 4 continues the dominant theme of the letter, which shows the reality of how to live fleshed out faith during oppressive circumstances. Believers in Jesus Christ should direct their hearts and minds towards living out the will of God, regardless of the cost. True believers must pay a price, but considering eternity, it's worth the cost. Here, Peter is writing to Christians who were suffering unjust treatment and persecution, concern, encouraging them that they can have victory in their suffering. Chapter 4 teaches us, since Jesus suffered, we must be prepared to suffer, even to the point of death. Someone asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? Lewis replied, why not? They're the only ones that can take it. True? We will see from this chapter how having the mind of Christ, along with serving and even suffering for God's glory, allows us to have victory in the midst of trials and suffering. Verses 1 through 6, we'll look at having the mind of Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 4 begins with, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The therefore in verse 1 is referring to Christ's suffering back in chapter 3, verse 18, which states, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The suffering that Christ endured was in part because of his righteous life. And in the flesh is a direct reference to Christ's death on the cross at Calvary. Christ suffered an agonizing physical death. He indeed suffered in the flesh for our sakes. Peter is pointing back to Christ's sufferings and was reminding his readers that Christ suffered unjustly because it was God's will. 
and having been put to death in the flesh leaves no doubt that Jesus' physical life ceased. It shows his humanity. The encouragement here is that Christ is our supreme example in suffering. Though he was sinless and without fault, he suffered unjustly, being innocent of no crime. At the cross of Calvary, our Lord and Savior endured the greatest suffering. He took all our sins upon his innocent and sinless body for our sake, gaining triumph over sin and accomplishing our redemption from the condemnation of sin. This is proof that good can come out of injustice. In Christ, we see the just suffering for the unjust. Ladies, when we think of what's going on in the world today, the unfairness, the injustice, we can be confident that someday all the wrongs will be made right. God can bring good out of all of the things that are unfair in this world. Christ is our greatest example that our suffering can lead to victory. By suffering the flesh, Christ willingly endured the pain and agony of crucifixion unto death. Verse 1 continues saying that since Christ suffered in the flesh, we too are to arm ourselves with the same mind. Some versions use the word purpose. And what is that purpose? What is this purpose that was made clear through Christ's suffering and death? A willingness to die. Our purpose as believers should be voluntarily accept the possibility that our suffering may lead to our death. We are to be prepared to embrace not only our need to submit to Christ, but also any suffering that comes with the result of our calling. We arm ourselves by having the mind that Christ may require our life. But even in death, we have victory because Paul says, for to, me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. Like Ada and thousands of others, they knew the cost of serving Christ. They had the same mindset and were willing to die for the sake of Christ. Those that suffer and died for Christ's sake have ceased from sin. John MacArthur writes, The worst that can happen to a believer suffering unjustly is death. And that is the best that can happen because death means the complete and final end of all sins. The greatest reward, the greatest triumph of all in death is believers have ceased from sin. Oh, hallelujah, praise Lord. Don't we look forward to that? In glory, we will no longer be under the curse of sin. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And what brings mourning and crying and pain? Sin. How glorious that someday sin will pass away. Our goal in life is to cease from sin, but we will not reach this goal until we are in glory. So we need to continue striving. Since we are identified with Christ in his suffering and death, believers can have victory over sin. We are now called to live for the will of God. In verse 2, it tells us to live the rest of our lives not for fleshly desires, but rather for the will of God. As one commentator put it, we are to put sin in the rearview mirror. Leave behind those things we've already spent too much time on. 
Believers are exhorted to live for the present in God's will, and all our sinful habits should be a thing of the past. And notice in verse 3 that Peter describes some of those sins, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. These sins characterize life before coming to Christ. But now, with regenerated hearts, we live differently. We serve a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, instead of living according to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, we now live for Christ. But this sudden transformation of becoming a new creature in Christ does not resonate with those that are yet not saved. And this is where we see that the gospel offends Verse 4 says, in regard to these, which he's talking about those sins, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Your family, friends, and acquaintances will be surprised, then offended, and often resentful when they see a change of behavior in your attitude and your allegiance to Christ. They will not understand why the things you used to find pleasure in are now offensive to you. Maybe you've heard things like, don't take things so seriously. Loosen up. That's not so bad. You're just a stick in the mud or you're no fun anymore. Those people often feel judged by you. They look at you as self-righteous, judgmental, rigid. Then they take it to the next level of speaking evil against you. They may even defame and injure your reputation with verbal abuse and slander. We, we've actually had neighbors that totally ignore us and won't even say hi to us because they know that we're believers. We've been called self-righteous and goody-two-shoes. But ladies, when we are serious about living a righteous life, you will inevitably suffer persecution of all sorts. More than likely, God will not require your life but persecution will come your way. It may come anywhere from being blocked on Facebook, which I've been, <laughs> to losing your job due to your faith. In verse 5, Peter assures his readers that those who persecute and slander believers, those who live their lives in idolatry, indulgence, and have malign believers will face judgment. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And those unbelievers, both the living and the dead, that practice such things, such as slander and abusing Christians, will give an account to the supreme judge, the Lord God himself. All the unsaved, both living and dead, will stand before the judge, Jesus Christ, of the great white throne judgment, will, they be, will be judged guilty and sentenced to eternal damnation, being separated from God for all eternity. Verse 6 affirms again that those believers who died before the Lord's return will enter into the promise of eternal life. You'll remember when we studied 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, um, where Paul gives assurance to the Thessalonians that those believers who died did not forfeit the promises related to Christ's return. So just as Christ was crucified, was alive in spirit, and raised from the dead, so it is for believers who, visit, who suffer physical death. Their spirits will remain alive and enter into the promise of eternal life. 
A famous hymn says, while we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky, but when traveling days are over, not a shadow, not a sigh. Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of him in glory will the toils of life repay. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Aren't you glad I didn't sing that? <laughs> I did last night. Oh, and that's why I'm not doing it now. So our first point is that we are to have the mind of Christ. Verses 7 through 11 brings us to our second point, and that is serving for God's glory. In verses 7 through 11, Peter is exhorting and reminding his readers that the end of all things is at hand. In light of what Peter gives his readers, uh, in light of that, Peter gives his readers specific instructions as to how they should live. And although verse, uh, verse 7 says, but the end of all things as, is at hand, the Greek word end actually means a consummation, a goal achieved, a result attained. It does not mean stop or cease. Peter is calling all believers to live fruitful lives for Christ since we are in the end days. Christ could return at any time, so don't procrastinate in living for him. Have you yourself said or heard others say, when I get older, I'll start serving the Lord, or maybe I'm just too busy. This season in life, I just have so much going on. We don't know when that might be, so live for the eternal. We don't know when Christ will return. We need to live for the present. The coming of Christ should compel us to live godly lives. So in verses 7 through 11, Peter gives us six ways that we are to be exhorted to live in the light of, uh, light of Christ's return. In verse 7, we are to have self-control and be sober-minded in our prayers. We are to pray with a mind that is focused and alert. Our prayers should be well thought out, taken seriously, not nonchalantly or flippantly. We should put serious thought into our prayers and avoid being driven in prayer solely by our emotions, our passions, or our desires. Our mind should be fixed on Christ and his return. This is the direct opposite of verse 3, where unbelievers were given over to drunkenness. Next in verse 8, we are to have fervent love for one another. I love this one. Fervent love seems, uh, means to be stretched. And during our leaders meter, meeting, one of our leaders said, um, she compared it to Christ on the cross, stretching out his arms as he loved us so much and died for us. Are you willing to love others in that same way that Christ loved you? Are you willing to be inconvenienced or perhaps rearrange your schedule to help someone? Are you compelled to love others deeply? Are you doing life with those in the church? This describes an agape love, which is sacrificial, love which is the highest form of love that there is. It is a willing decision in the mind which translates into action. The goal of agape love is always to seek the good of the other person. I realize this may be difficult, especially when we have been wronged or hurt by another person. So that's why the end of verse 8, Peter tells us that this kind of love 
covers a multitude of sins. This verse is not saying we shouldn't point out sin or let ongoing sinful behavior continue, but rather, if we can let that offense go, we are to do so. We are not to bring to someone's attention every little thing. We must exhibit a love that is willing to be stretched because love covers a multitude of sins. As we move into verse 9, Peter exhorts us to show hospitality. Hospitality is one of the ways we put the command to love one another into practice. We are to open our homes, whether it be with a meal, keeping someone overnight, or just a short visit with someone. Some of the sweetest times Jack and I have had is when we were on the receiving end of hospitality. On many of our missions trips to foreign countries, the believers couldn't do enough for us. They lovingly offered us food, housing, and intimate fellowship. They genuinely made us feel loved and cared for, even though we were in countries where we didn't speak the language. We felt extremely welcomed and loved. We never felt the need to be guarded, nor did we ever feel neglected. In love, they provided everything we need. Ladies, when you invite others into your home for food and fellowship, there's no need to provide a 10-course meal. My husband and I would be happy with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. (laughs) Actually, Jack would probably prefer peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But seriously, it's about the fellowship. We just love the fellowship. There's nothing more welcoming to someone new in the church than to invite them for dinner. And ladies, we do this with joy, not with grumbling or complaining. When we truly love with the love of Christ, we don't focus on the extra work or expense or the duty. There's no blessing in that. Next, Peter goes on to tell us that God has given each of us at least one spiritual gift, which we are to use to benefit the body of believers. These gifts from God are not for our personal use. He gives them to benefit the body of Christ. The verse says we are to be good stewards of these gifts. So in other words, God has given us these gifts to serve one another and therefore show ourselves to be good stewards in the church, which ultimately gives God the glory. And ladies, don't be stressed or worried about what your spiritual gift is. Serve where you feel confident. Try new things to see if that is a ministry that you fit. More times than not, someone in the church will bring to your attention where they feel that you are gifted. Others often recognize that in us. But regardless, serve somewhere. Verse 11 divides these spiritual gifts into two broad categories, speaking and serving. Speaking gifts can include evangelism, preaching, encouragement, teaching Sunday school, leadership, and the serving would encompass providing for the needs of others, meals, babysitting, driving somewhere. Ladies, we are to use our spiritual gifts to build up the body and also because that glorifies the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
J.C. Ryle's observations on holy living still apply to all believers living in a world hostile to Christianity. He said, and I quote, a holy man will follow after spiritual mindedness. He will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above and to hold things on earth with a very loose hand. He will not neglect the business of the life that now is, but the first place in his mind and the thoughts will be given to life to come. He will aim to live like one whose treasure is in heaven and to all through this world like a stranger and pilgrim traveling to his home. This brings us to verses 12 through 19 and we end chapter 4 where Peter focuses on the suffering of a Christian for the glory of God. Verses 1 through 6, again, we saw the suffering of Christ, the just for the unjust. We just finished in verses 7 through 11 how we are to serve others for God's glory. So in these final verses, we see how we are to suffer for God's glory. I love how Peter begins this verse with beloved. This shows his shepherd's heart. Peter, again, is going to tell them some hard truths, so he wants his readers to first recognize his love for them as well as God's love for them. Because Christ suffered the just for the unjust, and because the end times are near, Peter is exhorting his readers, don't be surprised, don't be shocked, nor to think it strange the fiery trials that come your way, because Christ suffered unjustly to the point of death, we too, should expect to share in that suffering with Christ. And that validates the genuineness of our faith. In verse 12, the term fiery trials carries the idea of the burning of metals to refine them. The fiery trials in this verse could uh, be a reference to the extreme suffering and martyrdom of Christians under Nero's reign when believers were martyred by dipping them in tar and using them as living torches to light the guards of Nero. But regardless of the severity or frequency of suffering, all believers will suffer for Christ. Just as Christ suffered for you, you also will suffer. Our trials may come in all different circumstances. You may lose a job, a home, have a difficult marriage, suffer poor health. Suffering may be short-lived, long-term, but in some form or fashion, sufferings will come. Ladies, when you commit your life to Christ, you partner with him in his sufferings. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John MacArthur said, and I quote, For Christians, the confrontation with sin and the world often results in suffering, which is the promised cost of discipleship. Not maybe, but promised. We are to pick up our cross daily. Our persecution is inevitable and does not discriminate. We all are not surprised. And our trials don't happen by chance. They don't happen accidentally. God either ordains them or he allows them. Verse 13 tells, that we, tells us that we suffer for good. Our trials are for good and for God's glory. We are partakers in his, in, we are partakers with Christ in our suffering. And suffering brings refining. Persecutions and sufferings for a believer are a refining process. It proves the genuineness of our faith and God's love for us. 
We are to rejoice in our suffering because believers who are persecuted for their faith in this life will have overflowing joy in the future because of their reward. Matthew 5, 11 through 12a states, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Our return rewards as believers are proportionate to the suffering that we endure here on earth. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 affirms, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory for all beyond all comparison. Ladies, I know some of you have experienced a tremendous amount of suffering and pain. Some of you may feel you've experienced sufferings in the past that were beyond your ability to endure. Maybe some of you are presently experiencing that kind of suffering. But remember, our suffering is never wasted. God does use it for our good and his glory. And in heaven, there is a tremendous reward that awaits you. All faith are believers who have suffered. For the sake of Christ, their reward awaits them. This is what we live for. This side of glory, we will have trials. We will be reviled for the name of Christ. Verse 14 actually gives us a specific kind of suffering. We can expect to suffer insults and to be treated unfairly. One commentator described this form of suffering as the dismantling of a person's character with false information. James wrote an entire chapter on the tongue. James 3, 6 states, The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole curse of his life on fire, and itself set on fire by hell. But when we as believers suffer this injustice, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to strengthen and refresh us. And once again, we are blessed and God is glorified. Peter goes on to give us a warning in verse 15 that tells us to make sure that our suffering isn't due to sin. Here Peter says we are not to suffer as murderers, thieves, evildoers, or busybodies. Not all suffering brings Holy Spirit relief. Lawless actions do not constitute suffering for righteousness. And although we may not see ourselves as murderers or thieves, we can relate to being busybody, gossips, or at times, ones who might stir up trouble. Make sure you're not suffering because of sinful behavior, because your suffering may be the consequence of sinful behavior. There is no reward for suffering justly. Conversely, verse 16 says to not be ashamed when you suffer unjustly for Christ's sake. Don't be ashamed or embarrassed to be identified with Christ. Matthew Henry, Henry rightly said, They shall not share with Christ in his glory then that were not willing to share with his disgrace now. When we suffer unjustly, our faith doesn't bring shame, but conversely, it brings glory to God. When we are faithful witnesses to the world and we suffer for it, we bring him glory. We dare not be ashamed of Christ even when we face ridicule or worse. 
Although God will forgive us when we repent for being ashamed of him, persistent refusing to be identified with Jesus could indicate that we're not true disciples. Verses 17 through 18 tell us that judgment is coming. For the believer, trials and sufferings can have a positive impact. One commentator stated this way, the effect of persecution is to show up the church those who really believe and are prepared to stand firm and those who do not believe and so fall away when under trial. A believer's judgment is chastening, which leads to cleansing and not eternal condemnation. Peter says in verse 18 that it's hard enough for those who embrace the gospel to work out their salvation in this life, but it will be tremendously worse for unbelievers on the day of judgment who live in disobedience and ungodliness. Conversely, for unbelievers, judgment is not part of a refining process, but rather is a judicial judgment resulting in eternal punishment and damnation. My last quote from John MacArthur <laughs> sums it up by saying, it is de indefinitely better for people to endure suffering with joy now as believers being purified for effective testimony and eternal glory than to later bear uh, eternal torment as unbelievers. Ladies, our suffering is not due to blind fate, again, or accidental, accidental happenings. When we suffer, we suffer according to the will of God. As creator and sustainer of our lives, we can trust in him completely to finish the good work that he began in us, even if it requires our death. My son David recalled a true event on his Facebook page recently regarding the Jets' National Hockey League player Morgan Barron, who returned to game one, a final game one, after receiving 75-plus stitches. Less than a period after taking a skate to the face, Baron returned to the ice with a full cage over his helmet. Was this dedication? Was it money? It was at least sacrifice and determination. Ladies, do we have that same kind of determination to finish the race? Are we willing to get back in the game or stay in the game? when trials and persecution come our way, ladies, we have hope and strength and assurance that our faithful creator will see us through to glory. May we all endure whatever life brings our way so that someday we can hear those blessed words from our Lord and Savior. Well done, O good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, help us to have your mindset and strength when the fiery trials of life come our way, knowing that we stand with you in your suffering on the cross of Calvary. As we are in the last days, help us to exhibit to the world the love of Christ so they may be jealous and ask the reason for our behavior, giving us the immense opportunity to share your love with them. May we do all to your honor and glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.